You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Osell. I'm an architect at this.labs. Today, I have a co-host. My co-host today is... Adam Barrett, that's me. I'm also, uh, I work at this.labs, except I'm a senior developer. <laughs> okay, great. Well, today we're very excited to sit down and talk with Alex Olivier about authorization and Servos. Alex is a product lead at Servos. Alex, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm going great, thanks. Uh, very good, uh, very happy to be here. Great, great to speak to you both about uh, this crazy world of authorization. Yeah, you know, and it's funny to start there because, uh, you know, authorization is something that I think, you know, if you've taken a course on security, maybe you've talked about it, but some people think it's interchangeable with authentication. Sometimes people maybe have heard things like auth N or auth Z. Mm. Um, and I know a lot of people realize that they have people sign up to their websites. You know, they have auth zero or they have, you know, Google or whatever their, their provider is for identity. And I think as far as people understand, that's the whole ball game. That's all they've really needed. They've had to deal with the other piece implicitly in their code, but I don't know if they've really thought about it as such. So to start us out, could you kind of explain what authorization is different from authentication so people kind of understand what we're talking about today? Yeah, it's unfortunate that the two words sound so familiar and the spelling is so close, plus the uh, the auth C and auth N thing is, isn't the easiest to quickly read. Um, but if you kind of think of a, a typical application and, and sort of at a sort of requirements level or a business level, like what's involved in terms of a user coming in and then doing something inside of, of your app, inside of you know, some API endpoint. There's kind of three main things. First off, they have to identify themselves with some sort of credential. So you'll typically log in username, password. You might use a GitHub login, Google login, you know, all, the, all those fun things that we're all used to. Secondly, there's generally some sort of like directory information or sort of user profile information. So uh, if it's like a team structure, like what team they belong to, uh, maybe what uh, role they have, are they an admin, are they a regular user? Um, it could be what office you belong to, what organization you belong to, uh, some of the technologies that you, know, you might be familiar with, things like LDAP, Azure Active Directory, the, these sort of things, which are you know, quite heavy and enterprisey. But they, they contain that sort of address book of, of uh, profile information and, and that, those kind of attributes. And the third thing is the authorization layer, which is the the layer which enforces the rules around who's allowed to do what. So any system that you, you know, many of us use today will have some notion of roles and permissions. And uh, if you take like a typical SaaS, say B2B type SaaS system, you'll have like an admin, you'll have a manager, you'll have a user, and there's rules around what each of those can do. You know, admin can do everything, a manager can do, you know, create, read, update, delete, a viewer can only read, these, these sort of things. And that, that authorization piece is that business logic the kind of enforcement of the rules and, and uh, the conditions that need to be met before you're allowed to do an action. So authentication, working out who the person is based on some credential. The uh, directory information, you know, what attributes about that user from your user service and authorization, which is the enforcement of the, sort of the business rules around what that person is should be allowed to do. Great. And so, you know, I think a lot of people, if they do implement this, and a lot of people do, right? I mean, many of our systems have admin users or, yeah. you know, you have some sort of special account. So you want someone to be able to read their data, but not somebody else's data. So again, I think this is something that people have implicitly done, but maybe mm -hmm. not necessarily thought to put a name to. One of my, I think one of the questions that people might have is, okay, let's say I bring in, uh, an, you know, a service like Servos, and to do that, how does service know what people are allowed to do? And, and I guess what I'm asking here is, is how do I define what the mm -hmm. things are that people can and can't do or the things they might want to try to do? How, how, does, how does a library of service like service start to know that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a great question and some, something that I've sort of had to face many times. So I've been both a, a developer and engineer uh, as well as a product manager through numerous startups of various sizes and various stages, and um, always very much focused on the data and infrastructure side of things, and as well as the security. And as someone um, that is kind of in this headspace, and you're maybe you're building your own app, maybe you're building something, you know, for the day job, as it were. Um, and the requirements, pretty much every time start out with a spreadsheet, where you literally have your rows of 
um, actions. So you might have, say, it's like a, a uh, like an expenses tracking system. You have like an expense. You'll have actions of creating expense or approving expense. And then your columns are the different roles. What can an admin do? What can a regular user do? What can someone in the finance team do? And in the most basic uh, world, sort of each of those intersections. So can a, a admin person approve an expense? Yes or no. Can a you know, regular user delete an expense? Yes or no. Um, which is kind of the most basic way to start. And, and that goes into like a Jira ticket and you end up kind of coding this big if-else case switch style logic to kind of find out those conditions. But in reality, when you're really writing that that business logic, and you know, that's where I started every time I wrote a load of if statements, um, there's actually more to it than just if this person has this role, they can do an action. What happens the vast majority of the time, you go into having to use more context and attributes about the particular thing you're trying to do an action upon. So we talked about authn and auth, uh, authn and auth z. There's two more acronyms that kind of in the space, which is R back and A back. So RBAC, role-based access control, is very simple. Has this person got this role, then they can do a thing or not. And that's kind of the, the tick box and the grid of roles and, and, and permissions. ABAC, or attribute-based access control, is really what most of the time you'll end up implementing and in, in, in coding in, in here, inside of your system. And this is where you're actually using the context about the user and the resource they're trying to in, interact with. So the best example of this is one of the kind of roles your your um, kind of business logic will have is like, is this person an owner? And an owner is extremely contextual based on the resource you're trying to access. So the you know, most obvious way to implement that is you would have some sort of like owner ID attribute on a particular thing inside of your system. So if you go to like an expenses system, like who created the expense? And then you know the idea of the person making the request from your authentication kind of workflow. And if they're equal, now they're the owner and they should be given extra permissions. And that, that's using attributes to make uh, authorization decisions upon. Um, and, and you know, most of the time, the vast majority of actually use cases are really working at that level. And that's what makes that if-else case switch style logic so complicated. Um, and actually kind of having built this across different verticals, there's a commonality in this kind of complicated business logic that uh, we got kind of fed up of rewriting and reinventing the wheel. Um, so hence, we wanted to start working on it. a solution to this to solve it once and for all. And that pretty much leads us exactly to what we're about to talk about, which is Serbos, which is, as you have described it maybe before, a uh, service for uh, Auth-Z or Auth-Z, depending <laughs> yes. on where you're yes. from. Yes, sorry, accents. <laughs> no, I, I, I am Canadian, so we say Auth-Z correctly. I don't know yeah, what, well. uh, what Rob says. I can be the odd one out on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew, up, yeah. I grew so, up in the States, so I can flick between the two. <laughs> So I guess maybe we should like sort of start with like, I mean, you've, you've basically just described the use case, but what is Serbos then? Like, and what, what, what how did, well, obviously how, you just described mm. how it came about, but what does it solve, I suppose? Yeah, I think it's best to kind of take a step back and look at generally how software is built and architected sort of these days. So I started coding at the young old age of about six or seven. My dad taught me basic on like an MS-DOS type, type machine. And back then uh, you were writing... Um, not just your logic, but also how to like store data on disk or how you would process files and these sort of things. And as technology evolved, a lot of this repetitive and complicated logic started getting extracted out into uh, standalone services. And I think the most, sort of the earliest, the most obvious example of this is like a database. Nowadays, you would never go and build a database unless that's like your core business, sort of what you do day in, day out, and you love understanding you know, binary search trees and all that sort of stuff. Um, and if we keep looking at the evolution of technology over time, you know, there's been these big components that have ended up being decoupled from your code and are off the shelf components. So uh, in the, the kind of this discussion, authentication is a really big one. You know, if you go back five, 10 years ago, you would be creating a, a user's table in your database. It would have an email field. It would have a, a password or hopefully a you know, hash and assault. Um, but back there, maybe just an MD5 hash. Um, and uh, that that was kind of manageable for a while. And then there was this proliferation that like OAuth 2 came along and you wanted to support Google login and GitHub login and Facebook login. And the kind of the complexity of managing your own sort of user database system uh, just kind of grew and grew and grew. And then out, along comes something like Auth0, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with, but equally Firebase Authentication, um, uh, Cognito from Amazon, 
they are they are the standalone service now that is kind of a no-brainer to just drop in because you don't have to handle all this complexity uh, of something that ultimately isn't core to what your system or application does. Like, why would you spend all this time building a, a user database when you can just go and pick something off the shelf for free in a lot of cases um, um, and drop it in and then you get to focus and move on to, to the next sort of thing. So through that kind of arc and, and from myself and the rest of our team's kind of experience with different businesses, the next chunk we saw as something that was really low value in terms of contributing to what the application does and, and quite hard to maintain is was this authorization space, that, that business logic for working out who can actually do what once they're, once they're authenticated. Um, you know, from my kind of own experience, uh, I worked in like a supply chain business and it took us uh, months to actually go and implement this business logic in a scalable fashion. Uh, and I, and then a year later, we had to rebuild it again because the requirements changed. Um, and authorization is one of those things, unlike authentication, which is like clear cut, you're authenticated or you're not, and that's it. Authorization has lots more complexity around it. Um, and as you kind of grow and scale a business, the requirements will change. So early days, you just want to know whether someone is an admin or a user. You know, do they have the company email address? Thus, they should be able to do everything in the system. Or they're a user, they can do it that way. And then you kind of, your system matures a bit uh, and you now want to kind of have the concept of different uh, uh, like geographies maybe. So, you know, you want to launch a system inside of the US and as well inside of Europe and you need to have kind of dedicated uh, permissions for who can do what within that. Uh, and then the company kind of matures again and you want to maybe change how your uh, feature set is sort of packaged maybe. Or, or imagine like you're building a system just for yourself and you want to control who's seeking which features. That's actually a type of authorization really. So you want to shift around who can see what capabilities based on you know, how they selected as what role they have or how they, you know, what package they're on, those kind of things. And in a growing SaaS business, for example, that was going to be chopping and changing uh, as you'll change your kind of like go-to-market strategy and, and, and things like that. And then you kind of come to another inflection point where you're going to have to rewrite it all again. And, and now let's say you're moving from a monolith node application, Rails application, these sort of things to a web of microservices because now suddenly you want to have like a, a, a recommendation model in Python. You want to, you have some legacy components sitting around in say .NET, you're, you have your backend for your front end in Node um, and you have all these different components in different languages. And now whenever those requirements change, you're going to have to go and take that business logic, that spreadsheet we spoke about earlier and translate that into not just one language, but as many languages as you have across your different services to get that kind of consistent authorization. And that is extremely painful and really hard to test. And whenever those requirements change, you're taking a ticket, you know, you're creating a ticket with your dev team and someone's gonna have to sit down and figure out all this complicated business logic. When really the requirements sit outside of developers, they sit with like a product team or a security team. So with all that kind of in mind and having gone through all that, all that pain, both myself and the rest of the team, we were like, well, it's gotta be a better, better way to do this. And that's ultimately where the open source project Servos, Servos uh, came from. Uh, from our own pain and, and it's actually so nice to be working on something that I would use myself when I'm building and architecting a system now. Uh, so Servos is that open source decoupled stateless authorization layer for your software. So I think when people uh, think of something like this, you know, when you, you mentioned all these authentication providers and a lot of those are, um, you know, services that you, you know, pay a certain amount of money to those people, they host them, maybe they have like a CLI or some sort of SDK tool that, that you use inside of your system. What is the model then with Servos? Is this something that people uh, integrate into their solutions via some library? Is this, you know, we've been very specifically saying a service throughout this, yes. uh, this podcast so far. Is this something that they can self-host or would self-host themselves? Is this something that's only available remotely? Like, can you kind of explain to people how... Uh, how they would access these th this system? Yeah, absolutely. So, Servos is a service. It, it's a, a a container, a binary that you run alongside your application. Uh, if you're using something like Kubernetes, it fits as like a sidecar inside of your cluster. If you're using Lambda, it can run as a Lambda function. If you're just running your app on like a DigitalOcean droplet, for example, you just run the binary on it. Um, it's designed to kind of run anywhere. We've actually even got one of our users that runs it on like actual hardware out in the real world, which is quite cool. Um, and 
the idea is that all that complicated business logic we've been talking about is now extracted out into this centralized service that you run inside of inside of your system. And then every part of your application, regardless of it being the front end, the back end, some like async worker queue, et cetera, when it needs to make an authorization decision, no longer has that big if else case switch dot logic. It just asks that service instance that's running alongside it. Hey, I've got this user trying to do this action on this particular resource. Should it be allowed or not? And it's an extremely simple API. The service instance replies either yes, allow, or no, deny. Uh, and then your application code is simplified to a very simple um, sort of if else statement based upon that. In terms of like how and sort of how it runs and where you run it, so it is completely open source. It's, you know, services exist today is Apache 2 license. You can go and grab it off GitHub. We publish the containers, we publish the binaries. Uh, you can go and compile it from source you want. It's all in Go. Um, and you run it where you want. It's not like a cloud service and it's not something that kind of we, we run for you. And actually, that's not because we're being lazy. It's actually for two main reasons. One is performance and two is security. Authorization is something that's in the, in the blocking path or the critical path of every single request to your application. You can't cache it like you can authentication. If you authenticate, you can get like a token or a cookie that lasts for say 30 minutes. Authorization is has to make a decision in real time based on the context it's given. So that thing needs to be running as close as possible to your application to get the lowest possible, um, you know, fastest possible response. And the service instance itself makes a decision in under you know, under a millisecond. It's, everything else is kind of network at that stage. And the second one is security. You know, you're going to be passing context about your users and your resources in that request to Cerberus. So you want to run that thing. Yeah, firewalled off from the world inside your infrastructure uh, and not over the internet is, is a big one. Um, so that model of it being a service means that you can use it from anywhere and also it means you can deploy it anywhere inside of your stack. That makes most sense. You know, one of the things that I, on teams that I've been on when they migrated from a monolith approach to a microservice approach was you go through that stage of sort of naivete where you take anything that was going to directly call another module and you go, okay, well, it's as easy as just calling over the service boundary. But what you find out is then something that used to take 50 milliseconds to run now takes 16 seconds to run. And it's because <laughs> you had architected it in a way that the two modules were very chatty with one another. And so yeah. now it's hitting the network every single time instead of just running in process. So when thinking about the fact that Cerberus might be a separate process, how do you recommend people um, refactor their if-else chains to reduce this, or is that even a problem? Like, are people calling out to Servos at the moment that they're deciding, or are people like doing this, uh, at like like they do with authentication when they, you know, here's my token, let me go get all your roles. Now let me go get all the things you're allowed to do, and now I can make all my decisions based on that. Or are they supposed to basically call out to Servos every time they wanted to do one of those if checks? Hey, are they still allowed to do it? Okay, now I'll continue through this conditional. Yeah, yeah great, 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 great question. Sort of the typical place that Cerberus is sort of implemented is in your you know, request handler. So if you have like an express application, you have your get handler or your post handler, or whatever. Um, that request comes in to that handler. Uh, from the request context, you have someone's identity because you, you, you know, authenticated with some service. Uh, you maybe fetch some context from your own database. And then uh, based on the request, you then go and fetch from your own services, like what the actual resource they're trying to interact with. So if we go back to that sort of expenses tracking application before, from the request that say it was like the approve endpoint, you know their identity, you go you from the URL or the payload, you know the ID of the uh, particular uh, expense that someone's trying to approve. You go out to your database to go and fetch the context about you know, the data about that particular expense. And then at that point, you go and make a call out to the service instance. And why that's important to be doing it every single time uh, um, inside the request flow is the way service model, and we haven't spoken about the policy side yet, is Cerberus itself is getting the latest policies or the latest configuration of your business logic. They're in YAML definitions from a source. And, and generally that's like a Git repo. There's a nice GitOps workflow with CI tooling, et cetera. And one of the big advantages of having that business logic extracted out to that standalone service is when those requirements change, which they will do, you can update and push new policy just to that Cerberus instance. And then every part of the application that's making a decision gets essentially the updated business logic in, in one go. Um, and that's why you, it's important to do the check on every um, every call for ultimately freshness to make sure you're getting the latest decision. Uh, and also because that you can start having policies that are things like 
uh, is this request coming from a particular IP range or is it coming from a particular time of day? You know, if this is, say, like a, uh, a system that businesses use, make sure it's within business hours and all sorts of further context you can do with that, which you can only do by making sure it's a, you know, a, a, a very dynamic check and a, a check that's run on every request to get the latest value or decision. <laughs> Yeah, that's super cool. I I, uh, I was playing around with it and I really liked, I guess you would call it the architecture of the whole decision-making process because, you know, when I'm when I'm trying to like architect something in systems, talking to systems, I, I like to find the points where you can sort of reduce complexity. And I think this is one of those ones that maybe people didn't realize, right? They're just like, oh, if everywhere in the app always calls like the same function and sort of asynchronously decides like, hey, is this allowed or is this not allowed? You can push a lot of that, you know, like you said, mm -hmm. the big switch statement, whatever, into one place. Um, but as for like updating the, uh, you know, you said the YAML files, but I, 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 and I actually know that you can also like have it, uh, as a database, uh, mm -hmm. too, that can make these decisions. Right. So like, what does that look like? What, what is writing the rules look like? And, and, you know, is it something that non-developers can do? Great, great question. So I, I think it's worth going back to like one of the very early design decisions we made with Servos, which is around the fact it's stateless. Um, so my background and a few members of our team is we've come from very high throughput, low latency data processing type systems. So you know, 25 billion events a day was the kind of order of magnitudes we were used, used to working uh, with. And that raises all sorts of fun and weird and wonderful edge cases you don't have to worry about at smaller scale. And um, having stateless services that can scale up and down with load and make decisions without having to do any sort of ex ha have any external dependency on like a database or other service that needs to scale alongside of it just solves so much complexity. And because authorization needs to be snappy and it needs to always be correct, um, not holding any state within Serverless itself uh, is is a design pattern we decided upon that has helped. You know, blockchain.com, for example, runs on top of Serverless work at their sort of scale. Um, and, and that decision kind of applies across the board. So when it comes to actually writing a policy, you're not having to learn or, or develop or sort of code in any sort of new language or understand how to interrogate a database or how to go and make API calls off to some other service inside of the stack, etc. The service policies are on the face of it very simple, though underneath very powerful. And uh, today they are in the open source core, um, all defined as these YAML files. They look very similar to like Kubernetes manifestos. You're familiar with those. Um, they're in fact compatible. Um, and inside these policies, you you define things like here are my resources. Here are the actions on it for this particular resource that you can do. Here's the role someone might ha has to have in order to do a particular action. And here are the condition or conditions or nested conditions even that must be met to um, uh, be able to do a particular action or be denied a particular action. And the way these conditions are constructed is you're essentially interrogating that input that's coming from the request from the application to the service instance. And you kind of access to it sort of like you do with the request response variables inside of an Express app. You have like request.principal.id uh, to get the principal's ID or the user ID. And then you have like request.resource.attribute.officeID or, or owner ID, for example, to go and look at those, those attributes as well. Um, it uses a, an open source library called Cell, common expression language from Google for defining that, that business logic. Um, but the kind of experience today is for developers who are happy in their VS Code. You know, we publish uh, schemas for all these things. So you get nice IntelliSense, et cetera, as well to define these policies. Uh, and, and I mentioned earlier, we have like CI tooling as well. So you can actually write unit tests for your authorization logic and have a full test suite that does like matrix testing of every single combination of things before you kind of push out, push out these codes, uh, push out these code. That sounds awesome. So from the, from the other side of this, right, which is, uh, you know, almost having too much power. I, I was, mm. I was sort of marveling as I was looking at the ways that you can define some of these roles with all the conditionals, which you've sort of made reference to a few different times. I think some of the ones that people would use most of the time are so natural, like, this is the owner of that document. Owners can edit their own documents, but they can't edit other people's documents. Yeah. That makes total sense. But as you said, there is a lot of expressiveness in those conditionals, I'm sure, to handle very unusual edge cases, which I'd love to hear any unusual edge cases that you've been asked for by, by customers <laughs> that led to some of these products. But one of the questions I have for you and for people doing this, and we've seen it with other libraries that are quite potent and very expressive, is 
people start to realize they can do certain things, so they start sort of shoving it in. And so my question is, where does authorization and role-based logic end, and where does business logic start? So for example, what if I built a role that said, yeah, you're allowed to withdraw money, but only if there's money in your account? That's kind of seems to me would be more business logic, but you know, maybe I could find a way to code it into my roles. So how do you help developers understand what is in their role conditionals and what maybe is just business logic? Or is that not a distinction there as I described it? So, so that is a kind of that exact scenario of, uh, you know, as a bank account, you can do some action, but only if the balance is over a certain amount, that is something that Today, we have actually a lot of users in fintech using Serbos today, and that's an exact condition that would be put in place. Oh, okay. So, so you've okay, hit so... on a perfect, perfect example of, of exactly this. And if that take, um, that that's actually quite a good one because the the balance, for example, is a dynamic value based on the request um, in your to your application. Let's say you have some like withdrawal endpoint. You know the user, you know their bank account, they know their balances. Um, you know how from the request, you know how much they uh, want to withdraw. And um, you could just go and write that if statement inside of your request handler to make sure they're different. But now let's say actually their role, that this sort of imaginary bank has rolled out a overdraft capability. And now um, you want to, you're allowing people to withdraw more than that. Today, you would have to go and update every part of your code that has that logic in it. By centralizing that that business logic out into a, a centralized point and a, a configuration driven um, uh, file rather than your application code, it's one point to change that logic, and you now could actually do uh, an interrogation of okay, this person make a withdrawal of one hundred dollars. The, the account currently has fifty dollars in it, but they have an overdraft facility of another hundred dollars, and you can actually do that math inside of a policy, and because. The, the logic is defined once, and you can do that computation on the fly in, at request time in real time. Um, whenever that business logic changes again, there's only one point to do it. And plus you can have all the nice testing around it also without having to go and touch your entire code base and redeploy your entire application. So has there ever been a case of you uh, getting a request from a customer um, or hearing from a developer something that they wanted to do in Servos that you ultimately came back to them and said, what you're trying to do really isn't what what we're supposed to be in control of. You need to look elsewhere. Or I, I guess I'm trying to understand, is there an edge to these conditionals? Because I kind of thought I had found an edge. <laughs> so, um, you know, that kind of both excites me and makes me kind of wonder, you know, how hmm. much of my code will end up in my authorization handling code. And, and to some extent now, I'm starting to realize how much of my code was in the realm of authorization without me really realizing it. Yeah, it's a great question. The way, the way we kind of sort of Layered out when we have discussions with, with kind of members of, of the open source sort of community we have we have like a slack community and so we talk quite a lot to everyone is the way to kind of think about it is your application is the th is the the engine doing the work so once the transaction is approved it's the system that goes and updates the database it creates a, a uh, an audit log it goes and um does the actual um transaction and you know does the sql queries and all that sort of fun stuff but the, the business logic and the authorization logic um, is something that you can extract out and is and can be much more uh, dynamic. And equally, the difference between like high-level roles and what is the authorization logic is also another area that we kind of get a lot of questions around as well. And the way to kind of think about it is your application or your authentication provider has those very coarse-level roles. This person's an admin, this person's a user, and, and, and that's kind of the only differentiation you have and then everything else now is ultimately business logic you know is this person the owner is now something that is the authorization decision to make based on the context um so more and more of, of ultimately the business logic can now be represented inside of uh, these authorization policies rather than being hard-coded into your application and you know when we speak to you know, developers day in day out i was actually at web summit a couple of years ago a couple of weeks ago and i think we spoke to like 200 different uh, companies on a single day um, who are facing this kind of exact same decision criteria right now. It's like we're re-architecting our system or our business logic keeps changing around what the authorization is. I need something that will actually scale and grow with me so I don't have to keep going back to either myself or the dev team and going, we need to go and update XYZ points across the entire stack and all these different languages to update the business logic. So anything that 
is business logic that's going to change or could change. Um, it makes sense to kind of extract out your code so you end up, firstly, don't repeat yourself, going back to the classic dry principle. Um, but also, um, Adam, you kind of mentioned about like non-developers, like what does that story look like? We're in a world, we're in a world now where there are product teams and product managers um, who are today happy to go and work in YAML files, but we have kind of roadmap of capabilities that brings more of a, a GUI type workflow on top of that also coming down the line. But for the first time, uh, we're getting feedback that product teams or even security audit type teams within companies, for the first time, can actually understand the business logics. It's so clearly laid out in a single point in something that is human readable. YAML, love it or hate it. Um, but understandable, at least, whilst before it was just a black box to them where they had to go and know XYZ language to even get comprehend what's going on. Yeah, that's... That's super great. And and I love the fact, like, like you mentioned, because it's stateless, it's like when you change things, it's instant. It doesn't have, you know, it's not like you don't need to redeploy massive parts of the code or get in sync and stuff. It's like, it's just like, yeah, that, that changed now it's done. I mean, okay. This is one of those... that's dealt on that pain though. Like if you've ever, that stateless thing, I mean, for some people, I think that might be gliding over their heads, but like, if you've ever had to deal with a situation where you have multiple deployments of something and that one just won't restart for whatever reason, and you get that weird phantom bug where every third refresh of the page something oh, yes. breaks. It's <laughs> so, <laughs> such a pain. Yeah, like, okay. the alternate model here is you end up like replicating big chunks of your database into another service. And then if that synchronization loop fails for whatever reason, you end up with stale data, cache misses. It's a whole world of pain. <laughs> so this question might sound like one of those things where like you, you plant an audience member because I actually already know the answer, but it's such a cool feature. I just got to bring it up. Um, so sometimes there's like an incident, like something bad happens. Somebody got access to something they shouldn't. And, you know, some security teams come along and they got to like figure out like, okay, what happened? It usually takes like, you know, a developer's time because they got to like comb through the code. They have to like look at like what was the state of the database at this moment, blah, blah, blah. But I know Servos has a way to like simplify that. I just want you to talk about it. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let me tell you a bit of a story from one of my previous companies. Uh, I, I was the product person running, uh, responsible for like the data security side of the, the system. And we went through the wonderfully fun journey of getting ISO 27001 compliance. Um, you know, you may be familiar with SOC 2 as well. These kind of uh, compliance certificates um, and standards you get and you get to put a nice stamp on your website and it means you can buy, you work with lots of larger companies, etc. But every year I used to get dragged into a conference room by an auditor and demanded to be shown XYZ things to ensure we kind of met our compliance. And one of those things was the access logs or, or the audit logs of who did what when. And the first time I did it, it was uh, an experience of like having to trawl through S3 logs or going you know, into CloudWatch and all this sort of stuff uh, to, to kind of pull out and demonstrate that we did have control over this. Um, you know, we had the logs, they were all being captured somewhere, but they weren't in a way that was, let's say, easily interrogable. Um, so that always sucked. And every year I knew it was coming. Uh, and... Again, it's one of those things like there has to be a better way to do this. So one of the core uh, benefits of using a standalone authorization service, you know, not just Servos, but anything that works with this model, is that there's now a central point where all the decisions are made. So again, regardless of whether you're checking permissions from the front end, the back end, you have some like batch job that's doing something in the background, because all the decisions are going through a single point, you're going to get a clean and consistent log and audit trail of at this time, this principal tried to do this action on this resource and it was either allowed or denied. And, uh, you know, Servos today, it, it outputs those in a, in a JSON lines format and you can go and push them off to Datadog or CloudWatch or, uh, sorry, CloudTrail or, or you know, Elastic, the Elk Stack, all those sort of weird and wonderful things that are out there, uh, integrate it into, you know more security instant management systems like there's a there's a lot you can do with those logs but the key thing is they're gonna be correct because it's the system that's actually making the decision that's also logging and capturing the decision um yeah i mentioned that we have a large number of, of fintech users and and um, these are regulated industries you know we've got a big utilities company based in the uk uh, using servos today and like the number one thing that they all, they all say is save them they sleep this nights like i used to have was like heading this audit log out uh, and it was kind of like a a silent or unexpected feature when we kind of built the system it was kind of a an obvious thing to have in there um and now just hearing from from users today that it has saved them 
the same sort of headaches and sleepless nights I used to have has been extremely rewarding. Um, and, and, you know, if, if you're ever in, in a business that is looking at going through those certifications, like this is something you need to get your ducks in a row on early on if, if you're going to be able to you know, uh, get over those hurdles. I mean, it's a value of decoupled services. I mean, this is part of why Auth0 and services like it took off so well is because there are so many dark corners and complexities and oh, features yes. that most teams don't even realize they need. And anybody that's been on a team that realized they needed auditing at the moment they needed the data the auditing would give them uh, knows that you know having that kind of feature that you can just mm -hmm. turn on or have access to quite cheaply uh, and you can focus on something else Instead, instead of having to figure out how, do, where do I track this? How do I yeah. track it? How do I query it? Um, yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. It's and, that's and, great. And that's value. just like the actual access logs as well. The other kind of benefit is now is that the business logic existing in these configuration files, those are version controlled as well. So you keep those in a Git repo. You have all your standard change uh, review process in there. You have that clear, again, like uh, log of who did what when as well for the policy definitions as, as well as actually what happened um, in the real world, and this is being used, um, the GitOps workflow that you know has been trumpeted as this this revolution in like managing your infrastructure with Flux and all these sorts of technologies applies to so many other different areas of software architecture today. And and you know we were just trying to do our bit to help the authorization side of things. It's so funny too the Git piece. We we've we've had the opportunity through the podcast to talk to a lot of different um, service providers and, and library authors and sort of this Git model is becoming quite ubiquitous across all products yeah. and libraries. I mean, it is potent, but I find it interesting. I don't know if it's purely, you know, GitHub and GitLab and, and products like it that have just made it so universal, but it's it's super interesting to see everybody kind of coalescing around this model in some way uh, for version control. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, the one that kind of really turned me onto it, um, as well as like the infrastructure with Flux side side of things as well is um, Looker the the ML, uh, the analytics kind of uh, dashboarding tool that kept all their underlying data definitions in in a, a Git repo that you provided yourself and the the beauty of it just being any old standard Git repo for storing your configuration and your policies is that firstly it fits with the rest of the tooling you have in your stack but also you as a business or as a person building system has full control of the underlying data store of where these things exist. So you're not trusting some cloud service. Well, you're going to rely on GitHub being up, but you're not trusting some faceless vendor that's promising you some sort of SLA with this, this, this cloud service. It's a Git repo that you provide, you control, it's in your organization. You have all the, the keys around it. You can move it somewhere else if you want. Uh, and then that whole you know, the, the workflow that I think has been optimized to a T by the likes of uh, GitHub, but also tools like, you know, Linear as well for task tracking, like building around this core concept of uh, Git and version control just kind of sort of makes sense in retrospect, though at the time probably we didn't really think about it. Um, and it's just a, such a clean model and something that we as sort of developers are so happy with and the tooling is great around it these days. You know, earlier you talked about the decoupling, uh, you know, architecture that y'all have, this idea of decoupling this authorization piece from other business logic and, and people's software. And one of the things that I don't think it's enough credit for with uh, decoupling is the, well, the reduced mental load of mm. not having to keep into account all of that complexity while you're trying to reason about something else. There's a lot of power in being able to say, well, this method works as long as this piece here does what it says it does, which I have to trust that it does. But one of the ways that we can uh, trust but validate, verify, is with testing. And so what I think is interesting about the decoupling story is what it does for the testing story, which is that mm -hmm. I think a lot of people maybe have built rigs that call their API with users with all different types of configuration to force their API through different pathways. But now with Serbos, we have or with any decoupled approach like this, you have the ability now to run a suite of test cases directly against the the service itself. Yes. And that gives you that assurance that the piece that, that you know, your logic will work. Can you talk a little bit more about that and just kind of what that, how people can use that? Yeah, the, the way I, the, the analogy I like using is building software today is, is like Legos. You know, you have this box of, of, various bits and pieces that can do various things and it's really down to you to decide how you stick them all together but the advantage of lego is everything's a block and you can 
test that block independently from everything else. You can you know, take it out of your Lego house, let's say, very Ed Sheeran, um, and, and go and um, test it in, independently. And, and that's something that I think anyone that's sort of built, if we look at like a typical microservices architecture, each of your services inside of your stack, you'll, you will be having tests in sort of a unit, as it were, because that, that block that you can test just how that component works, as well as the wider sort of end-to-end test suite as well. So we were very keen early on to make sure that there's a really good testing story when it comes to authorization as well. So as well as defining your policies in these configuration files, uh, these YAML files, you also define tests and you can essentially do test-driven development with authorization, which is something that's extremely hard to do if you were to code it into your app. Um, and we're in all the different code paths and all the different routes that that um, is possible and the plethora of roles and definitions, et cetera, that could happen. So by taking and decoupling the authorization piece into a standalone unit that you can test test itself, um, it, it enables you to test every single permutation and allow also lean on the framework to let it do the sort of that full matrix of every possible user, every possible resource, every sort possible action and permeate through those. Uh, and so you can be sure of what's going to happen. And yeah, you know, I've found all sorts of weird edge cases that I had never considered in some of like the demo apps we built um, um, out there that. I wouldn't have never, never have stumbled upon uh, until it was probably too late if there wasn't a, like a test rig around it. Hey, anything that cuts down on my need to do mocking, I'm all for. I think <laughs> oh, this yes. has been my <laughs> testing nightmare is as code gets more coupled and more complicated, the, the hoops you have to jump through to get in these particular edge cases. Yeah, um, I, and you know, the benefit, so you know, Serverless is open source, but there's many open, other open source components you can drop in to do things like authentication or log collection or metrics or, you know, proxies and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, you can also, there's a certain level of uh, you know, comfort you can have that this is an open source project. There's lots of eyes on it. It itself has a load of internal unit tests of how it works. And you can go and inspect those, interrogate yours yourselves, or even go and open a pull request and add some, some other case in there, which we've been sort of lucky to already have a number of contributions from the wider world to this core of Serverless, uh, which has been great. Um, and you know, it, it sort of helps you tick a lock of boxes or, uh, that that you sometimes have to go through to be able to use software inside of a stack, inside of a business even. So this is the opposite of what I did earlier. This is kind of a weird question maybe that you're just gonna shrug and go, I, I don't know, man. <laughs> um, uh, but um, so I'm, I was thinking when I was thinking about like how Cerberus works and okay, you give it the you know, identity and the attributes and it returns mm. to you like a yes or no. And I started thinking, oh, that's kind of familiar. Like that sort of sounds to me like feature flags, which then blew my mind. And I thought, are feature flags just a specific form of authorization? And then I started thinking, should we be using Cerberus for feature flags then? Very good question. So there are sort of two types of feature flags in, in the way I think about things. This is just me. It's probably not the best way of approaching it. But from my experience, there's feature flags for like a at a developer or an engineer type systems level, things that maybe you want to test out a, a new code path or you want to enable separate mode. And, and that's where these various different services are out there to help you managing feature flags. Uh, flag, flags are great for those kind of more um, sort of low level type, type flags. Maybe you want to you know, use a different library or whatever. The kind of feature flags and actually a lot of our users today that exist in sort of the service world is more around like product packaging or feature packaging. So this person is on the the beginner package or the you know, the starter package, and that comes with X amount of features and limits. So you maybe get like, if it's like a CI tool, you can view your CI logs, you can have 100 build minutes, and you can have three users, for example. But that is, that is essentially authorization logic because you're checking how many users there are, how many build minutes they've used, and you know, whether they can view a log based on who they are and what they're trying to do inside, inside of your system. And that is actually one of the extremely common things that causes a lot of headaches when it comes to rewriting your business logic because you might want to suddenly go from this beginner plan and then introduce a new plan and you want to migrate people between them or they're stuck on a different version or they're on a you know, some people's on a month-to-month -month package, someone's done an annual year package, like how do you manage and migrate those users? So that's where extracting was essentially like the actual business business logic out of the code base into um, something like Serverless is really helpful. You know, still keeping those underlying core 
architectural type feature flags inside of your system, but the actual packaging of, of features and capabilities from a commercial or monetization or just like rollout perspective is where uh, we're seeing kind of serverless being used uh, quite a lot. And it was actually a bit of a, a nice surprise to see it being used that way. It wasn't really our initial use case, but actually suddenly it's like, no, this actually makes a lot of sense and solves another headache that we hadn't really even begun to think about yet. Yeah, it's like stepping back from the abstraction and realizing that it's it's very yeah. much the same anyway. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's great. I, you know, what, one of the things I was thinking about too when I was uh, looking into this is that we see other libraries that do this. So, I mean, I'm not sure if you've ever done like Angular development in the JavaScript world, but there's a very popular state management library, library called NGRX there. And whatever your feelings are on state management stuff in general, one of the things that's really cool about it is it forces people that use it to think about their application and architected in ways that are more intentional because they have to like identify what are the events that occur that will cause data migrations. So one of the things I was thinking about when I was looking at like Cerberus in the way that it's laid out is by having to define what are the roles, what are the resources, what are the operations you can do on those resources. It's actually, I would imagine, a very potent tool for helping people uh, who don't naturally um, have a lot of experience doing that architecture stuff sort of fall into better architectures just by having to explicitly define this stuff. And in that way, I kind of like this tool as a sort of, you know, virtuous circle, this idea that you just, no matter mm -hmm. what you do, you're succeeding at least in some way. Um, I mean, I don't know if you guys had thought about it in that term before, but. Yeah, I kind of love that the view of the world and and I where, where we've seen servers helping in more of like a, uh, team dynamic type type scenarios actually it kind of gives almost like a common language for a a product or a security type person who holds the requirements and the developer who just wants to write that if statement um a, a common sort of way to think about things and you know generally if you're a developer you're you're writing an api endpoint for a particular resource you're you're kind of in the context of okay i have this thing and there's these actions that someone wants to do about it and that's sort of how you end up thinking about the world because roughly most APIs are like one API route does one action on some resource type. Whilst if you look at it from more like a business standpoint and like a product type type persona, they're thinking more about roles. So we have a member, we have a viewer, we have an editor and here are the things they should do. And what we've kind of seen through, you know, talking about those spreadsheets earlier, through going through that process between the product person and the developer um, or someone that just thinking about the business side of things or the enablement side of things versus the developer. Um, it gives that kind of common place where those those requirements can be met up in a way that both both sides can rationalize about without it just like I was saying you know, being a bit of a black box to someone that doesn't want to go and read code and um, does force does a force a bit of hygiene around how you think about your application how you think about state how you think about actions how you think about resources um, and and it does like you're saying kind of force a bit of a it forces a bit of best practice almost on you quite early on, but it's best yeah. practice that will help you grow massively because when the requirements do change or you sign like some massive user that has all sorts of weird and wonderful custom requirements, you're already set up for it. You don't have to go back and spend three months rewriting your authorization logic, which I've done many a time. <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I, you know, I've worked with a lot of junior and mid-level developers and I sometimes find that the best way to explain architecture to them is just knowing what you're trying to do before you sit down at your keyboard, uh, <laughs> yes. before you even think of what library or what even language you're using, uh, understand what you want to do. And that just sort of becomes that guiding star. And again, things like this that make you think, well, who are the roles? What are the, uh, what are the entities that people interact with? In what ways do they interact with them? Just even having those conversations just will lead to better understanding with you know your business development folks with your customers with your engineers mm -hmm. it's self-documenting in that yep. way uh and so yeah I, I i i really like that a lot and I, you know i think it's tools like this that are useful for people even on that level so yeah hopefully people get a chance to to play around with it and if nothing else they take away with it um that exercise of breaking up their uh their understanding of their user base in, in that way and their business logic in that way so uh, as we sort of close things up here, how can people that are interested um, find out more? Where should they be able to reach out to learn more about Serbos? Are there places where uh, other developers that are using Serbos uh, group up? I don't know, do you all have a, a Discord or some sort of Twitter space or something? Where, where, where can people kind of get connected more? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we have a, a Slack community. Um, you can find um, you can find pointers to that on our website. Serbos.dev uh, is the main site. Um, if you're someone that likes to learn by doing, we actually have a online playground, um, which is just play.service.dev, where you can actually jump right in and start experimenting, writing policies and start kind of mapping out your business logic. And it gives you that real-time feedback of here is what the permissions would say based on the conditions you wrote. You can even write your unit tests in there and it gives you all sorts of type of feedback. If you're someone that looks by, uh, prefers learning by reading, we have pretty extensive documentation uh, on the site as well, uh, as well as uh, quite a large um, set of sort of ecosystem type projects. So examples of how to integrate Servos with all zero, with Cognito, with uh, Clark and these sort of things, as well as how to integrate it into a, a Node Express app, how to integrate it with a Python fast API app, API app um, and numerous of those in all sorts of weird and wonderful languages to kind of help you uh, get up and running. Uh, and also uh, we do like free kind of workshop workshops. So if you have this niggling idea or not sure how to model something, uh, you can uh, just book one of those slots from our website and you'll get myself or one of the other team on a call and we'll actually sit there with you and help you um, develop your first policy right in, the, in that playground environment. Wonderful. Well, that will wrap it up. And uh, before we close out, I will say for the benefit of those that uh, I guess didn't read the title of this podcast, but are listening to it, that Cerbos is C-E-R-B-O-S. So if you're looking for it online, C-E-R-B-O-S, Cerbos.dev. But that's going to be it for us today. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this modern web podcast on authorization and Cerbos. Thank you to our guest, Alex. As always, we say the conversation does not stop here. Um, you can find Alex on Twitter at Alex Olivier. That's A-L-E-X-O-L-I-V-I-E-R. You can find Adam on Twitter at Adam L. Barrett. That's A-D-A-M-L-B-A, two R's, E, two T's. You can find me online at RoboCell. As for the podcast, you can find us online at moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. Thanks, everybody. Come See you on. next time. Come on, this podcast is sponsored by this.labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. For all of your friends and you. Shout it, yeah! Queries too, so come on, let's go, cause we got a show for.